Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at cars and transport from a variety of angles. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories from around the world, including Oregon debuts a road user charge where you get told for every kilometre you travel. We interview the co-author of an important book that has just been released, City Limits, Why Australian Cities Are Broken and How We Can Fix Them. We hear the latest from the Geneva Motor Show and in our panel discussion with Brian Smith we take a light-hearted look at stories including why latte from a scientific perspective is the perfect coffee for commuters. Have a question or a comment send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now let's get the program going first the news. Vehicle sales for the month of February 2015 have shown an increase of 4% over the same period in the previous year. But Ford continues to struggle. Once the best-selling car company in Australia, they are now down in sixth position, only marginally ahead of Mitsubishi, who are showing strong growth. If the trend continues, Ford will drop another place in the next month. Falcon continues its decline. It is now 54th in sales of vehicles in Australia. Toyota is still in the number one spot with steady sales, while the next three companies, Mazda, Holden and Hyundai, in year-to-date terms, show a decline. Go Auto reports that Mercedes will not import the new version of the smart car into Australia. The smart brand will continue in Australia with the current model, but it is hard to see how that can be a viable ongoing proposition. The car has simply not sold well in Australia. In 2014, they sold only 108 vehicles and only 126 in 2013. The design concept for smart automobiles began in the late 80s, associated with Swatch watches. The company developed links with Volkswagen, but by 1994, a deal was struck with Daimler, makers of Mercedes-Benz. The way we impose user charges on motorists is not very efficient. We implement tolls on motorways, which are the roads we want people to use, yet tolls are a disincentive. A better system would be to charge people for every kilometre they travel. A de facto charge is on fuel, but that differs significantly based on fuel consumption. Now Oregon in the US is implementing a distance-based tax, but the system is voluntary. Debuting on Oregon's roadways in July 2015, This voluntary distance-based road usage charging program is said to be North America's first implementation of a mileage-based charging solution. Volunteers will pay, from July 2015, a road usage charge of 1.5 cents per mile for the amount of miles they drive, instead of the fuel tax. They will also get a credit on their bill to offset the fuel tax they pay. Research has confirmed that a reduction in smog improves the health of children. Researchers at the University of Southern California spent 20 years following school kids in the LA Basin. According to their research, millennial children have shown the following benefits. Their lungs grew 10% faster. This quickened development correlates with diminished levels of small particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide, 40% lower than in the 90s. 8% of study subjects showed impaired lung function in the mid-90s. 6% did a few years later. 
That number dropped to under 4% for mid-2000s children, suggesting a gradual improvement in public health. A dedicated lane for long-distance travel has been presented as a solution to gridlock on Queensland's busiest road. A Griffith University School of Engineering researcher said computer modelling had shown a dedicated long-distance commuter lane could ease peak hour traffic on the M1 between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. The lane would have entry and exit points at the Gold Coast and close to Brisbane. The principle would be that there would be no lane changing along the route, thus reducing conflict and hopefully improving traffic flow. The research recognises that this approach has not been applied anywhere else in the world. The idea is being presented to the new government in Queensland. From next month, Wanneroo residents will be invited to take part in the Western Australian State Government's free personalised behaviour change program, Your Move Wanneroo. WA Transport Minister Dean Nolder said the community-based program would encourage participants to switch car trips for active modes of transport and increase physical activity. The joint program between the Department of Sport and Recreation and Department of Transport is an extension of the successful program piloted in the city of Cockburn, which saw 10,000 households taking part by June 2014. The program will now be offered to more than 64,000 households in the city of Wanneroo between April and December. About 86% of participants in Your Move Cockburn achieved part or all of their goals to become more active through walking, riding and taking part in sport and active recreation. And that has been the news. There is a strong link between land use and transport. Where we live, work and play dictates our need to travel around. The transport debate is often about what new services we might build and the land use debate is often about what sort of housing we might build. But do we understand the nature of what is happening with jobs and housing location and the general structure of our cities? Well, the Grattan Institute has just released a book titled City Limits, Why Australian Cities Are Broken and how we can fix them. Co-author is Paul Donegan, who joins us on the line. Paul, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, uh, Despite our art and literature, uh, heritage about the bush, Henry Lawson poems, Tom Roberts paintings, Australia is a very urbanised society, isn't it? One of the most urbanised countries in the world. That's right, David. Uh, most of us live in cities, and in fact, most of us live in quite large cities by world standards. If you think about Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, they're all more than one million people. And so it's really important to a lot of Australians that we get our cities to work well. I think they're a major part of our national income. That's it. That's right. That we're generating Cities generate most of na- national wealth, um, as well as housing most of the population. Um, but what we're seeing in how how cities are changing over time is a big and growing divide between where population growth is occurring, so that's mostly in outer suburbs, 20 kilometres or more from the city centres, but where the job creation is occurring and where the economy is growing most is inner suburbs and city centres within 10 kilometres of the CBD. So we've got this big and growing divide between where people live and where people work, 
and that obviously has some pretty substantial implications for transport networks. Including housing pricing too, doesn't it? It creates an, an inner elite. Well, it, in some respects it's almost a symptom of house prices that many people are um, moving to suburbs uh, on the outer fringes of cities because it's what they can afford. Mm. Um, that you know, people aren't necessarily preferring long commutes or limited access to public transport or, you know, spending more time and money on getting around. But you've got to have a roof over your head and if that's what you can afford, and we're seeing kind of increasing house price differentials between the very expensive inner suburbs and places further out, then you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah, in fact, the inner suburbs often have a better public transport system or do have a better public transport system. Much better, that's right. That If you look at those suburbs where the job creation is occurring is that these are places with very good access to public transport as a rule, um, in contrast to many parts of um, outer Melbourne, Sydney and other large Australian cities where access to public transport is limited, um, many homes don't have public transport services, especially nearby, and often those that do, um, they may be bus services that don't run especially, especially frequently, um, they take slow meandering routes, and so often aren't particularly useful to people either because the services aren't as frequent or as direct as they are in the inner city. Yeah, I remember some statistics out of Melbourne that said out in the outer suburbs, the average headway when, when, whenever the, dis, the, the time gap between services is about 45 minutes. You know, that if you miss one bus, then you've got a long wait to go. Uh, it, it, it's not good. And, and I think you have some figures that suggest that the average job is, um, it takes a long time to get to from the outer suburbs. Well, that's right. That um, If you look at all the jobs around the city, we measured um, what choice of jobs that gives people in a 45-minute car trip or an hour on public transport. Um, and what we're seeing is that in many parts of uh, all Australian cities, large cities out of suburbs, you can get to maybe one in 10 jobs in, across the whole city by, uh, public by car mm. or in some places as low as one in a hundred by public transport. Mm. Now what does that mean? That means that um, if you're looking to get into the workforce, the choice you have is very limited, so it, it becomes harder to get a job. If, um, for instance, your employer goes under or you need more hours, again, the choices available to you are less. Mm. And if you're looking to build a career, um, it's much harder to find somewhere where you might be able to build your skills or make better use of your skills, um, which is bad for households. We see that the kind of income gap between inner and outer suburban households and, and the jobs available in inner and outer suburban areas is substantial, um, which is also bad for the economy because if you're an employer, you want to get, have the best possible choice of potential workers to get the best fit for the job. But if the city is so kind of divided that you can't um, recruit from as big a pool of people, then that's a problem for you too. A lot of issues and some lovely uh, points that you've made. Paul, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much.
Not at all. Thank you, David. And that's Paul Donegan from the Grattan Institute, a co-author of the book City Limits, Why Australian Cities Are Broken and How We Can Fix Them, uh, a very important publication coming onto the market. And you can hear a longer interview of that uh, on our website if you go to www.drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. The Geneva Motor Show is the first major European motor show of the year. This year there was an awful lot of super expensive sport supercars. Our roving correspondent Brent Davidson from the Newcastle Herald and the Illawarra Mercury was there, so let's get the rundown from him. Brent, is it me or is uh, Geneva just full of these uh, exotic sports cars? No, it's not you, it's Geneva, mate. <laughs> Seriously. And, and, and the further you look, the, the better it gets. I mean, you, there's, there's names you hear like Roof and Jambala and all sorts of things. Uh, I can't even rem- remember half of them now, but, but, but Geneva is where they come out to play. And, and these guys do everything from uh, modify Porsches and Lamborghinis and Ferraris to actually build their own exotics with whatever engine you care to, to think of. You know, Mercedes-Benz AMG does a great job of supplying sort of 8-litre V12s with 4,000 turbochargers to anybody who'll pay for them. It's, it's, it's quite amazing stuff. Uh, the, the, the classic and the, the, the extreme, of course, is the Connie Seg. Is it Regera? Uh, yep. Uh, which has both a huge engine and is it three electric engines? Yep. Yep, all-wheel drive, three electric engines, huge V8 thing. It's just, um, yeah, it, it's, it, it kind of defies description, and it, and it almost defies the uh, the national budget of Switzerland in what they charge for these things. But oh, yeah. there are people willing to pay. Well, you see, I've, I've always argued that they don't build many of them, and to develop any car where you're only going to sit a gross you know, a hundred million dollars or something is is still not a lot of money. And David, uh, how dare you say only in a hundred million dollars in the same sentence? Come on, come on, a, a, a drop of reality, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as I said before, you remember it used to be the case that if you changed the uh, the blinkers on the back of a car, you you raked up a, an awful lot of costs, even in the, the Falcon or Commodore that uh, it, that. It was rather expensive, but here they are building these things. This Conic said the combined horsepower is about 1,500, I think, is it? Oh, it's it's something a little bit crazy. It, it, I think that's around about the number, yeah. You, you, your brain starts to swim with numbers after a little while, and all, it all becomes yes. a little a little bit um, too hard to take. But, you know, <laughs> the, the numbers are huge, and anybody who can master it is a way, way, way better better man than I will ever be, let me tell you. Or woman, or woman. <laughs> you're tied up here. 
Yeah, I think uh, being, having a, a super memory like uh, you know Goff Whitlam or whatever is uh, is a way to do this. I think, but still, fifteen hundred horsepower. Yeah, you know, I've just checked is the is the uh, thing for this Koenigsegg. Unbelievable. Some funny looking ones. And Aston Martin. I always think of them as low and sleek, but their DBX sits a bit higher. It looks. Yeah, uh, the Aston Martin SUV. Look, I'd rather take the Aston Martin Vulcan. I think, which is actually a um, a, a track only car for the very well heeled who want to go out and, and, and play race car drivers. It's a, um, it's a little different from the traditional uh, Aston Martin look, which is the long bonnet. This one is a little bit more cab forward and, yep. and very much more sort of in the style of a Ferrari rather than Aston's, which of course are in the style of a Jaguar. Yeah, look, it didn't win any uh, awards for um, any, any nominations, I should say, for the for the, the best looking car at the show. Um, that went to several other cars. You know? <laughs> but in in real terms, if you wanted to look at at, at SUVs that, that are here and now, there was the new Audi Q7, which which is showing a great degree of refinement. We'll see it this year or very early next year. Um, there was. <sighs> Look, there's so much stuff, David. Audi, Audi sort of stole the line a little bit with its its a uh, sorry R8, but Mercedes Benz um, really really took the biscuit with uh, six new cars and concept cars, and actually started the show off, believe it or not, by firing up its new um, GT3 racing car at 8 a.m. Because uh, Dieter Zetschka, the Mercedes-Benz boss, suggested that all the journalists needed waking up. <laughs> and it sounded good. It sounded fantastic, especially in the, uh, in the confines of the Pal Expo building. <laughs> and now Mercedes is uh, looking to do some rather interesting things. Mercedes is going almost uh, crazy in a, in, a, in a nice way. Um, they already have a plug-in hybrid version of the S-Class on the market in Europe. Uh, early next year, they'll have a C-Class sedan, and a bit later next year, they'll have an E-Class sedan, both with plug-in hybrid engines. Now, we're talking here about two-litre engines with, with uh, lithium-ion batteries and electric engines mated to them uh, and, and combined power outputs of about 245 uh, kilowatts and uh, 600 newton metres of torque, Ooh. all with, get this, an average fuel consumption figure of less than three litres per 100 kilometres. That's 100 miles per gallon. That's fantastic, isn't it? And get this, this, it goes further. By 2017, by the end of 2017, they're talking about having a total of 10 plug-in hybrid variants on the market. Brent, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. David, it's always my pleasure. It's Brent Davidson from the Newcastle Herald and the Illawarra Mercury, having just been to the Geneva Motor Show where he's found all the latest uh, from the Europeans particularly. And you can hear a longer version of that interview by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au.
that it's time to have a little bit of a chat to toss over a few issues to do with the broader side of motoring and transport. And joining me on the line is David Campbell. G'day, David. Hi, how's it going? Very well. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Uh, Brian, you have a story for us. Certainly, David. If you've ever spilled a drink, a coffee or something like that in your car, then science is here to rescue you. Two professors, uh, Professor Emily Dressier from uh, a complex fluids group at Princeton University in the States and uh, her co-author, Alban Soray of the French National Centre for Scientific Research, have discovered that the frothier your drink is, the less likely it is to spill in a car. And they've revealed that the latte, in their view, is the perfect coffee for commuting on trains and buses as uh, adding the foam on the top of, of the coffee makes it less likely to go over the rim of the cup. Disturbingly, they've also uh, identified that um, frothy beers are suitable <laughs> uh, drinks for having whilst moving. A Guinness is, I think, one of the, the best. Yes, Guinness was one that they noticed, and then the idea is that the the froth actually um, slows down the movement of the liquid, and five layers of foam are enough to decrease the height of uh, the waves inside the, the cup by a factor of 10. So uh, when you go to see your uh, you know, hipster barista, uh, make sure they give you the, um, the classic five-layered foam on your cappuccino. Does that leave anything to actually drink? I'm not a great cappuccino drinker i prefer a flat white latte or so uh so i'm not uh, real keen on this uh, they said latte but i would have thought cappuccino was more frothy <laughs> yeah yeah i guess um maybe it's to do with the milk uh, proportion david we- campbell so, well, this explains everything to me. I have always been frustrated, particularly in shopping malls, following around these bis- these big SUVs, and I've always put it down to these damned latte coffee drinkers, and now I know why. You know, that's that's why we are travelling at sort of one kilometre an hour around these shopping malls, because they've got their latte, their frothy lattes in the car. I, you know, cars do give us an example. They've got such a thing as a dry sump. Where they used to have the sloshing around of the oil in the bottom of the sump was a problem. So they worked out a system where they have a little uh, compartment, a little container off on the side and it's not down the bottom and it's pumped into that. So perhaps we need a better designed cup. The other one was baffles in the petrol tank that stopped the fuel sloshing around. According to the Journal of Physics of Fluids, um, they're, they're using this research uh, more broadly to look at reducing sloshing in, within tankers and uh, bulk movement of fluids by using foam as a bit of a damping mechanism. Uh, well, the other thing is, of course, you can get a puppy chino, so maybe it won't slop as much over the bowl. When the I, rem- I remember the old days when... <laughs> when there weren't even any coffee or cup holders in cars. And, you know, and now every car has half a dozen cup holders. So no wonder everything's getting out of kilter here. BMW said that they would never make a car with cap holders, but they do now. They so. sure do. I'm driving one, and I can tell you, they've got them everywhere. They're an absolute... Yeah, it's like the old days. You, you didn't need them. <laughs> That's right. Nobody could, drinks. Uh, steer with yep. your knees. There were no latte. the drinks in your hands. <laughs> We're no latte drinkers there. Sure, you could eat a hamburger with two hands. I, I, I worry about these people. They've done a lot of research in Starbucks, which isn't uh, very good to, for their credibility. The other one was that they really looked into it when they were in a, the south of France in a pub. 
and they noticed that they were carrying a pint <laughs> of Guinness. It didn't uh, do as much sloshing around as beer. <laughs> yeah, go for the Guinness. This is the of example, the isn't it, where the scientists are, are trying to use um, uh, use research to, to to get sort of funding and trips to the <laughs> south of France. <laughs> yes. We'll talk about that next week where there's some interesting research. Uh, a guy from Ireland presented in a conference in California, and it sounds to me like a great excuse just to get to, to go over to there. David, you have a story. Yes, look, and I'd like to move on to some serious matters. None of this coffee drinking stuff. I have some serious news to talk about, and I'd love your comments on this. This is uh, all about what's happening in North America, and as you know, they've had some pretty serious weather Mm. in the last little while. There's been some major snowstorms, and in Boston, there appears to be an unwritten rule that if you sort of shovel out a parking space... You know, you go to the trouble of shoveling out your own parking space. Well, then that parking space is yours for 48 hours. It's an unwritten rule, but everybody knows it. And uh, what's happening, of course, is that people are shoveling out these parking spaces. They have their own uh, space saver. Now, they they put a space saver in there. The space saver could be something like a, a shovel or a bucket or even an old sofa or a chair or a box or something like that just to indicate that that's theirs. And someone else will park in it. Now, here's the rub. If you park in someone else's space that is marked with a space saver, then your car is likely to be targeted. Now, that targeting could be something as uh, little as maybe the windscreen wipers are pulled off or something like that, or the tires are slashed or there's a scratch on it. So here's the rule. You just do not park in someone else's parking space that's been shoveled out of snow if there's a space saver. There you go. Now you know. I wonder if there's not a broader application here. Have you ever had anyone who um, sees a parking space, has to go and do a U-turn, so someone gets out of their car and goes and waits in the parking space? <laughs> that's happened. That, that, that's that's a, 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 <laughs> yes. a human space saver. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm not sure in America particularly whether someone might not just pull out a gun and, and, <laughs> and try and work that out. But uh, is there an etiquette? Well, this seems to relate more to um, parking spots outside your house, I think, hmm. Um, where you know you you dig your car, dig it, dig yourself a, a spot outside your house, then go and get where your car from wherever it is, and and come back, or you've dug the space out, you've you've driven out, left your space saver, and then you come back to it. But but of course, um, these are public streets. You know, nobody has the right under normal circumstances to their to the space outside their house. That anyone can park there. Um, uh, but I guess this is under these sort of uh, Difficult conditions where uh, they'll they'll I guess um, bend these um, rules a bit to acknowledge the the work that people have to put in to get a car space. Of course, the um, uh, Stephen Fox, who uh, is the co-chairman of uh, the South End Group in Boston, where this has been a bit of a problem, um, he said, of course, that somebody who has driven into that space has also shoveled their car out. So. Uh, um, he's uh, not so sure that uh, that there's a lot of logic in this. Gentlemen, uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, David. That's David Campbell and Brian Smith talking a little bit about the unusual physics, science and other things to do with motoring and transport.
And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Brent Davidson and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated to stations across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.